Hey, good morning, everybody. Glad to be online with you this morning. Now, many, hopefully even most of us, are going to be gathering this morning at Mendham Hills. So if you're not going to make it here in person, being with us online is a fantastic option. But guys, please know that if you're not here, you're missed. Not only that, but as you grow more comfortable, hopefully in the coming weeks, we need you here with us on campus. As I said last week, your me is vital to our we. Now today, we're going to kick off a new series, and I actually got the idea for this series at a conference our church leadership team went to about a year and a half ago. Today is day one in our new coming discussions on the faces of another. Now underlying this series is going to be a simple question. When we look into the face of another, what is it that we see? And conversely, when someone looks into the face of me, other than perhaps maybe a young Ryan Gosling, what do they see? Now, what I'm not talking about is skin color or hair color. It has nothing to do with height or weight or attractiveness. Truth is, that's often not only the first thing we see when we look at others. Heck, it's often the first thing we see when we look at ourselves. But in this series, I want to go deeper than kind of a superficial look into the face of another. I want to look deeper into their faces, their F-A-C-E-S, faces of another. Because at one level, what I want to work on during these weeks is to try to get us to see the deep needs that we all share and have in common, despite our outward appearances and differences. Now, we're also going to use faces as an acronym. F-A-C-E-S, to help us remember these shared needs, may I explain. Last week, if you were with us at church or online, we looked at the last prayer of Jesus, a prayer which he prayed very, specific, very specifically for you and I, and it had to do with the power of we and not me. That oneness and unity would be and is for his church, his gathering, his movement, more important than perhaps any other thing. Jesus prayed that we would be one. But because we haven't coalesced around one conviction, instead we've thought about a lot of lesser things. Because we've misunderstood who our enemies really are. Hint, hint, they're not people who look, think, or act differently. And because we've forgotten our great cause, to go and make disciples, to go and make followers of Jesus who understand that God loves them. Well, we as His church, when we lose our unity, we lose our way and we lose the battle. And, and guys, there is way too much at risk right now for this church, our town, your neighbors, our kids, to let disunity prevail. Jesus, as you may know, he was birthed into a culture and a religious system filled with rules and commands, thou shalt and thou shalt nots. Over 600 of them, and that's only the written ones. Now, by the time his ministry is over, Jesus had taken all of them and reduced them down to two. Matthew, one of Jesus' first and most controversial disciples, really, he recorded Jesus putting it this way. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. 
And then he would go on to say something that, that really, speaking of controversy, was controversial. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Guys, the one thing I miss the most about being in our building is seeing that commandment, those two commandments, every Sunday morning. That's why we chose that verse. That's why it's the one Bible verse you'll see in our church that takes up a whole wall in the foyer. That command, Jesus' new command, is that important. Now John, who was another one of Jesus' disciples, he recorded Jesus putting it this way. A new command I give you, not any of those hundreds of others, but a new command I give you, love one another. How? As I have loved you, so you must love one another. How? The way Jesus loves us. And why? By this, by the way you treat each other, by the way you talk to one another, by the way you relate to one another, the way you live with one another, by the way you love one another. Everyone will know that you're my disciples, but only if you love one another. Now, I know I'm not breaking any new ground here. If you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've heard this new command. But love, love is such a, a, an airy, lofty word. What does it mean to love? I mean, I love my wife, I love my kids, I love my dog, and I love the Dallas Cowboys. So obviously, I feel very differently about each of those things. For example, I take great pride and joy in my wife. Oftentimes, I'm rather neutral in regards to my dog, and I live in a state of continual disappointment with the Dallas Cowboys. So specifically now, if, if loving one another is, if it is mission critical, if this is how we're going to win and prevail in this life and then into the life to come, if this is how everybody would know, think about that. Everybody, my kids and your grandchildren, my friends, your neighbors, if this is how all of them will know who Jesus is and that God loves them, what does it really mean to love one another? Well, you're in luck because that's what we're going to be working on over these next bunch of weeks. Both Jesus and the Apostle Paul, who after the Gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul wrote most of what we call the New Testament. Jesus and Paul, because it's so important, Get painfully specific. How specific? That little phrase, one another, that Jesus used in his command, his new command, which we just kind of run right by. Well, that, that phrase is derived from a Greek word, alelon, alelon, which means to one another, each other, mutually, reciprocally. It occurs not once. Not twice, not ten times, but a hundred times in the New Testament. And guys, nearly 60 of those occurrences are super specific commands teaching us how and how not to relate to one another, how to love one another, how to one another, one another. We are, the scriptures say, to forgive one another accept one another, care for one another, encourage one another, submit to one another, be devoted to one another, to live in harmony with one another. Should I go on? Because I can. We should be like-minded towards one another, admonish, care for, teach, restore, carry, consider, stir up, 
pray, exhort, well, you get it. Because I could go on and on. But we are to one another, one another. And if this is the way we win, if this is the way your husband that you're praying for to come to faith, if this is the way my wife is going to see and my kids and your grandchildren and our neighbors, if this is the way they'll know who Christ is, then it seems to me we need to take a little bit of a closer look at some of these things. Not all of them, because as I just showed you, we'd be in this series till next summer, but we're going to look at at least some of them. And so what we're going to do is, in the coming weeks, we're going to look at the first five. We're going to look at what it, what it would look like to forgive one another, to accept one another, to care for each other, encourage one another, and submit to one another. Forgive, accept, care, encourage, submit. The faces of another. And here's why. Because you have never looked at the face of another into the eyes of another who has not at very deep levels desired or needed to be forgiven, accepted, cared for, encouraged, or submitted to. We're going to learn to love one another by learning to one another, one another. Why? So that the world may know and that Christ might win. And so let's get started. In order to love each other, we have to be willing to forgive one another. And I, I don't know if this is the hardest one on the list. It's certainly up there. But I would say it's the foundational one on the list. Let me explain. See, in the world before Christ, well, at least before the gospel began to take root around the world, a B.C. world, a world before Christ, it was also a B.F. world in a sense, because it was a world before forgiveness. Now, you can look this up. It's actually fascinating. In that world, there existed in Bath, England, there was a Roman worship center. Archaeologists have excavated, and, and there they found scores of prayers the people of Bath had paid to have written down and offered there. They're called, Wikipedia this, you could check it out, they're called the Bath Curse Tablets, because by far the most common prayer discovered was a prayer for cursing. People would give the name of somebody who had hurt them, tell what their crime was, then specifically how they wanted the gods to harm them. John Ortberg, in his great book, Who Is This Man? He records several of these prayers. Uh, one of them went like this, quote, Dosimetis, I guess was the guy's name, or Dokimetis maybe, he's lost two gloves. He asked that the person who has stolen them should lose his mind and his eyes in the temple at the place where the goddess appoints. And to think, you thought an eye for an eye was tough. Another curse tablet discovered this time in Rome reads, quote, I, invite, I invoke you, holy angels and holy names, to tie up, block, strike, overthrow, harm, destroy, kill, and shatter Eucurius the charioteer and all his horses tomorrow in the arena of Rome. That would be bad. But he went on. Let the starting gates not open properly. Let him not compete quickly. Let him not pass. Let him not make the turn properly. Let him not receive the honors. Let him not come from behind and pass. But instead, let him collapse. Let him be bound. Let him be broken up and let him be dragged behind. Both in the early races and in the later ones. Now, now, quickly, quickly. Here is, is what's not really hard to believe. 
across the ancient world. Can you guess how many bless my enemy tablets have been found in Bath or Rome? That's right. None. Because in the ancient world, it was considered right, good, normal, even noble to bless your friends and to curse your enemies. And so, guys, this provides some cultural context, some background color to one of Jesus' strangest and most difficult teachings. Jesus was citing conventional wisdom when he noted that you've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Of course they had heard that said. That's what everybody said. Heck, it wasn't just said. It was taught. It was valued. Literature professor David Constant said that forgiveness as we know it did not exist in ancient Greece or Rome. Sure, there were ways to reestablish broken relationships, but the means were laid out related to honor or status or shame. There was no thought of atonement or grace. Ortberg points out that the ancient conventional wisdom said, quote, help your friends and punish your enemies. One monograph on the subject was simply entitled, Helping Friends and Harming Enemies. But, Jesus said, I'm telling you, love your enemies. Not only that, pray for those who persecute you, that you may be a child of your Father in heaven. This is so associated with Jesus that no less a thinker than German political theorist Hannah Arendt, the first woman appointed to a full professorship at Princeton, claimed, listen to this church, she claimed that forgiveness and love of enemies is a distinctly Christian contribution to the human race, quote, the discoverer of the role of forgiveness in the realm of human affairs was Jesus of Nazareth. And that, my friends, is exactly why his people would and should and could stand out. Why a gathering of them coming together would appear to everybody outside of the group as crazy and strange. Not because of the things that over the centuries we've used to differentiate ourselves, the way we dress or our music or our bumper stickers. They would stand out because of the way they forgave. And not just each other, but their enemies, even those who didn't agree with them, even those who persecuted them. Jesus, and you know this, he taught us to pray. If you have any background in the Christian faith, I mean, if you've gone to enough funerals, you know most of it. It's called the Lord's Prayer. And again, Matthew recorded it. Here's what he wrote. Jesus said, when you pray... Pray like this. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Jesus goes on. But I want to stop there because I think we missed that last part. I think we missed what we just prayed for. First, Jesus says, forgive us our debts. Super interesting word, right? Now, depending on your faith tradition, you might have grown up using the word forgive us our sins or maybe the word trespasses. But in the original Greek, the word Jesus used was debt. Why? Why debt? Well, and you know this. Because when somebody hurts us, 
when somebody sins against us, there is something inside us that wants to get even, wants uh, retribution. Did you catch that? We want to get even. And since I feel the need to get even, it has to mean at one level or another, I feel as if something's been taken away from me. The relationship is now out of balance. In other words, I feel like the other person owes me something to rebalance the relationship. This is where we get the language, I think you owe me an apology from. When we've been wronged or hurt, offended, when we've been talked about, when we've been gossiped about, when we've been stabbed in the back, betrayed, abandoned, cheated on, stolen from, there is, and I have felt it, in fact, all of us have, there is this sense of a debt incurred, and now within the relationship, there is a debt-debtor thing going on. And guys, this is why it's so hard to let go of these things, because we want We want to get paid back what we're owed. And if they're not going to pay us back what they stole, then the way our flesh works is, I will go get it back myself. Hence, the curse tablets. And so now back to to Jesus' prayer. He tells us to pray, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Now, Here's what I used to think that meant when I was a little boy kneeling next to my bed with my mom and she was teaching this prayer. I used to think what I was actually asking God was, God, forgive me my sins, the debt I have incurred and racked up to you. God, forgive me. And as I go through life, God, I'm going to try to remember to forgive my debtors too. God, I'll, I'll try to forgive just as I have been forgiven. God, you forgive, and and you'll inspire me to to give it a shot too. But that is actually not what Jesus is asking you to pray. Or, guys, dangerously enough, that is not what you have been praying for all of these years. What you've been asking God to do ever since you were a little boy or a little girl, at every mass you've attended, at every wedding, every funeral, What you have asked God to do time and time again is this. To forgive you to the same measure as, in the same amount as, to the same extent that you have forgiven the debts of others. All these years, you've been asking God to forgive you only to the extent that you have forgiven other people. That's scary. Charles Williams, the British poet, wrote that, quote, no word in English carries a greater possibility of terror than that little word, quote, as, in that clause. Forgive us as. Now, I know you might think I'm wrong about this. And my guess is that Jesus thought that those that heard him teach this thought that too. So he adds a postscript to the Lord's Prayer. And I can only wonder... How the world would be different if for the last 2,000 years we had added the clarifier to the prayer. If we had had just put this on and recited it over and over to each other. 
I heard it said this week that in any letter or email, it's been discovered that sociologists agree that the thing people remember the most, the most read part of the correspondence, when you're shooting out an email, if you want people to look at one part, everybody agrees, put it in the PS, the postscript. That's what they'll remember. Here's Jesus' PS to the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Sometimes Jesus' teachings are hard. This is a hard one. And lots of times we come up with fancy theological ways around hard things Jesus said. And this could be one of those hard ones that we try to do that with. Maybe, maybe Matthew didn't get this right. Maybe his voice the text software screwed it up. Maybe we could, could go with that if there weren't for another pesky story Jesus tells Peter just a short time later. Peter is hearing Jesus teach about how to deal with conflict, which if you are in conflict with someone and you're trying to figure out what to do, how to settle it, go to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. This is so important. That if you wanted to join Menham Hills, if you want to be part of our church and become a member here, this is on our application. We ask, how do you settle disagreements within the church? How are we going to settle our arguments? And we ask people to go read Matthew 18, 15 through 17. Well, Peter's overhearing Jesus telling folks about this. And Peter's a human being, and, and I'm sure he's thinking about some of the people he's got some beef with. Somebody that he has, it seems like, no small issue with. Peter, Peter has himself in some kind of relationship, we're not sure what, but somehow there's an offense going on, but it's not a minor offense, it's a repeated offense. Like the, pe- the person has hurt or disappointed him on more than one occasion. And, that, and so upon hearing this, Peter comes to Jesus and asks, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven? Peter's kind of throwing out what I imagine he thinks is a pretty big number, Jesus Like how many times, Jesus? This guy keeps doing it. When will enough be enough? Now some of you know Jesus' response. He answered, I I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Which seems like a lot. And then Jesus, as he always does, goes into a story. Therefore, he told Peter, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was bought to him. And since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. Well, at this, the servant falls on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I'll pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him. And here comes the key phrase. He canceled the debt, what he was owed, and he let him go. He canceled the debt, and he let him go. Jesus continues the story, but when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, nothing in comparison. But he grabbed him and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded his fellow servant falls to his knees and begs him, be be patient with me. I'll I'll pay it back. 
And unlike the original debtor who could never have repaid all that gold, this guy could have paid that back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. Well, when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and told their master everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in. He said, you wicked servant. I canceled all the debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant? Key phrase here. Just as I had on you. And in anger... His master handed him over the, to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay back all that he owed. And Peter, in case you didn't hear it before when I was teaching you to pray, Peter, in case you think Matthew got his text screwed up, Peter, I can, I can almost sense Jesus saying, Peter, let me repeat this to you again. You heard me say it before. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart forgive us our debts as we in relation to how we forgive our debtors and why why because our forgiveness is tied to our works that our salvation is somehow related to our performance no 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 we know that from the entirety of the scripture that that's not true what Jesus taught us to pray, what Jesus was trying to teach Peter and us is this. If the forgiveness that we received at the cost of the blood of the Son of God is so ineffective in our hearts that we're still bent on holding unforgiving grudges and bitterness against somebody else, we do not understand the gospel. We have not understood how great a debt we had. We have not understood how much we've been forgiven and how much it cost our great God to forgive us. It's clear we don't understand it. It's clear we haven't embraced it. Now sure, maybe we prayed a prayer or made a mental accedence to a theological proposition, but at deep levels in our heart, we have not understood nor internalized the gospel. We have not really repented of our sin or received in light of it God's grace and forgiveness because <laughs> if we had, we could, we would be able to forgive. Not that it's easy, but in light of what Christ has done for us, it becomes possible. And this, this is why the church would be, could be, should be different. Because you are going to have a whole community of people who understand how great a debt they owed, how much they've been forgiven. And gosh, when they all come together, there is just no way they're going to be holding grudges against each other. And here's the deal. On several occasions... We're called to forgive one another as in Christ Jesus God has forgiven us. And here's what that means as we learn to one another, one another. It means, listen to me now, it means we don't wait until someone comes to ask forgiveness. We don't wait for an apology to forgive somebody. Forgiving one another as Christ forgave us 
means we proactively forgive. We go to forgive. Well, to who? To, to our husband, to our wife, to our kids, to our coworkers, to whomever it is where the relationship now has drifted. There's some isolation and coldness. We don't wait for them to grovel to us. Do you want to know why? Because here is what we know. God demonstrated His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still in our sins, while we still owed a great debt, long before we ever repented or groveled, Christ died for us. Long before you were ever sorry, with full knowledge that you and I were going to make promises to Him that we would never keep, knowing full well that you would do what you know you shouldn't do and that I, I would do what I know I shouldn't do long before we ever looked to Him. He came for you. See guys, to one another, one another, when it comes to forgiveness, we have to forgive proactively just as God has forgiven us. Second way we forgive one another. Second way that we're going to look different than, than every other place on earth. We forgive one another as God forgives us. First, we're proactive in forgiveness. And the second is this. We, and this is, this, listen, this is hard. We assume responsibility. This is what God does when he forgave. This is how God forgives us. And therefore, so must we. Paul told the church he, he wrote to in the city of Corinth, quote, God made him, speaking of Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God moved towards us, and God chose to assume the responsibility for the debt, the payment for what was owed. He did not make us pay for what we had done. And therefore, believe it or not, as followers of this Christ, understanding what we've been forgiven of and the cost of it, in light of the cross of Calvary, Calvary, we really have no right to demand that of others. Forgiveness, and I, I want you to know this. I, I, I know this. It's not easy. Because forgiveness always bears a cost. Why? Because forgiveness acknowledges that a debt has been incurred. A loss has been sustained. Now, gosh... I wish it was only monetary. That's easy. But some of us have lost reputations, relationships, dreams, because of the uncaring, unthinking acts of others. And it seems kind of strange that a preacher up on a camera or in front of a stage could ask you to bear the cost of the sin of another. I mean, it would be ludicrous for me to ask that of you no less expect that from you. But it's not me who's actually asking you. It's the one who's done that exact same thing for you. To the extent that you have been forgiven, forgive. And you and I have been forgiven much. 
Tim Keller writes that by bearing the cost of sin, you're walking in the path of your master. You see, it's typical. Maybe you've had friends that, are do, that would do this. It's typical for non-Christians today to say the cross of Jesus makes no sense. I mean, why did Jesus have to die? Why couldn't God just forgive us? Well, actually, no one who's been deeply wrong, quote-unquote, just forgives. Because if someone wrongs you, there's only two options. You either make them suffer or you refuse revenge and forgive them and then you suffer. And if we can't forgive without suffering, how much more must God suffer in order to forgive us? I mean, if we unavoidably sense the obligation and debt and injustice of sin in our soul, how much more does God know it and feel it? On the cross of Christ, we see God forgiving us. And unfortunately, that was possible only if God suffered. See, on the cross, God's love satisfied his own justice by suffering, by, by bearing the penalty for sin, the cost that, that was incurred. There is never forgiveness without suffering. Nails, thorns, sweat, blood. Never. And friends, this is why the church would, could, and should look so different. Now, it's not easy. But God will help you do this if you ask. And again, it's so serious what's at stake. Philip Yancey, in one of the great books ever written, What's So Amazing About Grace, writes this. He said, I have a friend whose marriage has gone through tumultuous times. One night, George just passed a breaking point couldn't take it anymore. He began to pound the table on the floor. I hate you, he screamed at his wife. I won't take it anymore. I've had enough. I won't go on. I won't let it happen. No, no, no. Several months later, my friend woke up in the middle of the night and heard a strange sound coming from the room where his two-year-old son slept. He padded down the hall and he stood for a moment outside his son's door and shivers began to run through his spine. Couldn't even draw breath in a soft voice. The two-year-old was repeating word for word with precise inflection the argument between his mom and dad. I hate you. I won't take it anymore. No, no, no. And George realized that in some awful way he had just bequeathed his pain and anger and his unforgiveness to the next generation. There is another way. The one another way. Guys, you have never looked into the face of another human being, including your own, who does not need this kind of forgiveness. They might not deserve it. I know I didn't. But I needed it. I still do. Here's the question I heard asked this week, and I close with this for you. I wonder over the last 2,000 years, how many marriages might have been changed, how many families, how many friends, how many churches, how many lives could have been changed if when the Lord's Prayer was prayed, if we had just continued on and read the postscript, 
Maybe if we had just stopped at that line and hung on it for a second. Forgive our debts as. As. Just as we. Imagine if we would just stop there and let the Holy Spirit work and and thought about that one clause as. Where is forgiveness needed? To whom must I proactively go? Where am I holding on to grudges and debts? Where do I need to be proactive? Where do I need to go and claim some responsibility? Where do I need to go and forgive the way I have been forgiven? And so, that's what we're going to do. That's how we're going to close today. We're learning to one another, one another. We're going to pray the Lord's Prayer together. And as we say those words, as we have forgiven our debtors, we're going to stop. And I'm going to ask you to ask God to speak to you just at that point. And then go on and one another, whoever the other is, that God brings to mind. Let's pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Mendham, this week, go in one another another.